everyone. Welcome back to the Fan Fiction Tapes. Uh, today's... Shoot, what episode is today? Episode 12. Thank you. Ep- today's episode 12, uh, the real MVP, which is to say we're talking about antagonists this time. I'm back. I'm your host, Maya. And today I'm joined by... Oh, hi, I'm Dylan. <laughs> I'm back again after my somehow very uh, effective time out last time as host while Maya was dying, yeah. And I'm Jay. You may remember me from the um, shipping episode. And I'm back to talk about my favorite my favorite character in a narrative, the antagonist, because clearly I'm a sucker for them. And as always, I am our producer, Ian. All right. Well, to uh, get this ball rolling, what's an antagonist? What makes something an antagonist? Questions. <laughs> uh, antagonists actually don't necessarily have to be characters, although given that the theming of March is characters, we're mostly going to be talking about character antagonists. Oh, really? I want to talk Well, character about... can also be their own antagonist. That is true. <laughs> I wanted to talk about how the real antagonist is the world and capitalism, but okay. we'll get to that i'm sure (laughs) (laughs) no that's next month all right so to actually define what antagonist is uh something either a character or forced in the world that opposes your, the goals of your protagonist. They slow down what your protagonist wants to achieve or outright seek to harm them. common misconception about the antagonist is that the antagonist always has to be the person who is doing something that people will, would deem morally evil. In any, in any case, the antagonist is always the protagonist in their own story, and the protagonist is the antagonist to the antagonist story, and a lot of people forget this. Yeah, yeah, we talked about this a little bit uh, in episode 10, so for listeners who listen to that, you know I'm a big fan of villain protagonists and hero antagonists, Mm -hmm. partly because I like a little bit of war crimes in my stories, but that's me. You could just call it spice. (laughs) You like a bit of spice. (laughs) Don't have to be so... (laughs) Okay, but... Look, when a white person says spice, or when a white person hears spice because I'm not white, but they go, okay, pepper. I'm allergic to black pepper, okay? Well, that's a huge problem. I gotta be be specific. Fair. That's fair. Because if I don't, I end up with an interesting-looking hot sauce that has other stuff I like in it, and then it's got black pepper, and so I can't eat it. But yeah, no, the antagonist doesn't always have to be evil, the protagonist doesn't always have to be good, and the definitions of good and evil are subjective anyway. So, that's my two cents. Yep. And antagonists are... Sometimes they can be a force for change, like Mm -hmm. with uh, the bad uh, series Harry Potter. The antagonists of the story are uh, attempting to change the way that the Wizarding Society functions. And sometimes the antagonist can be right. Ergo, Magneto, who is progressively becoming more and more right. 
And they could also be antagonists who are right in the other sense, antagonists who attempt to keep things the way they are, mm-hmm. seek to prevent change to the status quo. This is usually where you'll see in superhero media cases of things like hero antagonists. They are benefited by the status quo, they don't want to change it, and the protagonist is labeled the villain because they would like to seek change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, just to, you know, we talk about antagonists in a way, and usually an antagonist will want something to change in a way, depending on, like, what type of antagonist you're going for. They'll either want to, you know, uh, be, uh, like, revert society back to something. They'll want to change society for the betterment of them or for the betterment of others, and they're more of a uh, sort of complex villain. We're talking about complex antagonists, you know, ones who do bad things uh, for a greater cause. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are many facets to this, but uh, yeah. An antagonist can be something as minor as the bully, who just, you know, sort of blocks our protagonist from, uh, you know, (laughs) having a stable life, uh, to, you know, the invading (laughs) alien species, who is like, haha, your planet, now ours. Many, many different antagonists. Yeah, that's kind of a a good lead-in to uh, something I want to cover today was antagonist archetypes, because there's a lot of books in the world. Many of them have antagonists. How are we going to go about classifying some of them so we can talk about them in a scholarly manner? Yeah. Because uh, I wouldn't say there are levels of antagonist. I mean, there are levels in terms of how much an antagonist defines a here a protagonist's story and like the path that they take but the bully from that high school teen rom-com romance that you're reading could have more impact on a protagonist's journey than the invading space armada of another of like a sci-fi novel it really depends i think there's i think there's axes to antagonists mhm Right, you have the scale. Is it your backstabbing bitch of an ex? Mm-hmm. Or is it the fascist leader of the country next door? Because those are gonna have very different effects and they're they're going to change how they interact with the story. Mm-hmm. Usually you don't know the fascist leader of the country next door personally. I mean sometimes mm-hmm. you might. But that's called an enemies to lovers arc. <laughs> so right, that sense of scale can impact how they interact with the protagonist, how the protagonist interacts with them. It's a lot more personal when it's <laughs> a smaller scale. And that. Honestly, I think that has a lot of impact on how your readers are going to feel about them, how likely they might be to forgive. Mm-hmm. 
and how likely they are to be willing to give them another shot. In fact, I think... Can I give an example? You know what my example's gonna be, but can I give it anyway? Uh, hit me with it. For example, how um, fans interact with Katra and Hordact from She-Ra and the Princess- Princesses of Power series. Hordak is, and even Horde Prime, are arguably worse um, than Catra was in terms of how big their scale, how big their scale of destruction was, how big their impact on Etheria as a whole was. But they are very limited in how they affect Adora's story and Adora's our protagonist, as opposed to Catra, for whom her interactions with Adora are incredibly personal having been childhood best friends before they became enemies. And not to mention the story has the relationship between the two being pretty much the central plot point for the first three seasons. For the whole series, but especially the first three seasons. That is actually a really good example to use for uh, scale of antagonists. You also... (laughs) Sorry, go on. Sorry, and the fan base has proven more willing to forgive Hordak than Katra. I've noticed. There's a lot of things that could cause that. Now you're making me want to do stats. You shouldn't have said that. <laughs> look, I'm look, I'm a, I'm a statistician. That's why you asked me to be on here in the first place. So I don't know what you want from me. I'm bad at stats. What statistics are you looking for? I might know what you're talking about. Um, I was interested in the comorbidity of forgiveness. The, I'm sorry. Uh, Weird phrasing. Comorbidity of forgiveness. Basically, how likely people were to forgive Catra, how likely people were to forgive Hordak, and the overlap between them, right? Who forgave both, who only forgave one, which Mm -hmm. one they chose to forgive. But that's well. I mean, that t- tends to correlate with yes, we're back to shipping. I'm sorry, that's who I am. Um, that tends to correlate with what ship is more they're attracted to more because I've noticed um, there are some entrapped act shippers that are fine with both ship both. Hi, um, but I've noticed that if they're more strongly um, attracted to entrapped act. As a ship, they're less likely to forgive Catra. Um, um, there's actually a lot more overlap between forgiving Hordak and shipping Catradora than there is between forgiving Catra and shipping and Trapdak. Huh. Interesting. But yeah, so that's... Uh, Shira is actually a really good example of both the differences in scale and then also a case where you, in fact, happen to know the fascist leader of the country next door. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, uh, can I place another archetype at uh, your guys' feet? How do, how do we feel about the Master and Apprentice? So obviously we have the old Star Wars, uh, Vader Palpatine. Uh, we would also have sort of uh, Ozai Azula. We have uh, uh, all for one and Shigaraki. So we have that sort of thing where we have the one who's slightly pulling the strings, maybe manipulating a younger sort of person who they plan to, you know, maybe one day you'll become me, you know. How do we feel about those types of uh, both villains, really? You know, 
usually we might see, you know, the lesser of the two ultimately will become a good person or less evil. Uh, how do mm -hmm. we feel about that type of antagonist duo of the uh, Master and Apprentice? Frankly, they're not a antagonist tool that I see used often, and I think it's just because it's really hard to do it in a way that feels impactful, you know? I mean, it's, it's in, like, every Star Wars media ever, but aside from well, that... Well, yeah, it's in every Star Wars media ever, but again, it's without that kind of... But when you're trying to, like, establish it as a whole new thing in your story, it's kind of hard to make it impactful because there is a fine line between... Um, the manipulation and the nuance between the master and apprentice and thus manipulating the apprentice into thus manipulating the protagonist versus um, the master manipulating the apprentice, but you're screaming at the apprentice the whole time in your head to just, why are you listening to this dumbass? There's a fine line there, and I feel like a lot of writers don't nail it. <laughs> and I feel like that's why it's not as popular. I feel like... <laughs> the Master and Apprentice is especially gaslighty, <laughs> you know. Oh yeah, that's yeah, how it yeah, really very goes. much so. Like, uh, yeah, and a lot of trauma on one side. <laughs> kind of related to that, I do want to see something. I, I don't know of anything off the top of my head like this, where you get attached to the Apprentice, and then the Master and Apprentice dynamic kicks off. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, so, sort of a creation of a character, and then the character gets picked up. See, if the prequels had come first. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I was thinking about it a lot more sapphically, but yeah, that, that, would, that would be the same thing. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, don't get me wrong, I'm an avid hater of Anakin Skywalker. Sorry to anyone who isn't. <laughs> but that is a point of... Anakin Skywalker, a lot of people did get attached to him before becoming Palpatine's apprentice, and I feel like that impact would have actually been a lot stronger if the prequels had been made first, but they were not, so... Mm. I mean, I like the order the stories were told in. Oh, I, I, like, I like the order of the story, it just... Again, I'm still out here about the Vader reveal and then the pre and then going to the prequels and going, hey, so he was always kind of a whiny bitch? I... I didn't see anything worth redeeming in there, but that's me. That's a personal hang-up. Y'all <laughs> probably have different opinions. <laughs> ooh, ooh. Okay, I have I have a villain archetype. Um, I think I think we've we've mainly been not villain archetype, antagonist archetype. We've kind of been talking about um, sort of villainous antagonist archetypes up to now. Here's one that's got a little bit more. Uh, heroic flavor and would would be more of a, a hero in a certain light. Uh, the Inspector Javert type. I'm not familiar with that. Well, probably because you're not familiar with Les Miserables, where the name comes from, but you are probably familiar with Warden Morgan. I am very familiar with Warden Morgan. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I'm a big fan of this type of antagonist. But the uninitiated. <laughs> okay. This is basically a uh, law enforcement officer, detective, or occasionally bounty hunter type oh. who is after the protagonist because they've broken the law. Or Oh, yeah. Javert is in Les Mis. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, in in the Dresden Files, uh, of part course. of Harry's backstory is that he used magic to kill uh, his um, first um, master, teacher. his first mm-hmm. teacher. Um, but it was in self-defense because his teacher was actually um, an evil wizard trying to brainwash him into becoming. Him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, however, one of the uh, what is it? Seven laws of magic in the Dresden verse is like you shall not. One. Yeah. You cannot use magic to kill. And the penalty for breaking any of the laws of magic is death. So, because it was in self-defense, Harry is only put on parole, and Warden and Warden Morgan is his parole officer, who is basically a well-intentioned extremist who is convinced that Harry is at any moment about to go fully mask off and become a black sorcerer. Now, I do want to say a couple of things. One in Dresden files that uh don't you can't kill with magic law pretty much only applies to humans. Yes. Non-humans are not covered by it. At vampires. Great. Um <laughs> That's fair. If you know, you know. But also uh Morgan is <laughs> as depicted throughout the series a good person just wrong yeah I, uh he is uh i mean in terms of D alignments he's definitely lawful good but leans heavily on the lawful side of that yes uh if we were to, to talk about sort of in the same vein of that one of the most famous that i can think of from that point of view is l from death note uh, mm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yep, yep. That's that's a definite case of you definitely have a hero Javert antagonist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Light, yeah. light is not a good person. No, <laughs> he's a god of a new world. <laughs> oh, I literally okay, only I... read the first two volumes of the manga, and even I know what y'all are talking about. <laughs> I have actually never read, watched anything Death Note. And I know loosely who they're talking about. So L, I just is... don't know which one's which. So L okay. is the world's greatest detective trying to hunt down the mysterious uh, mass murderer Kira. No one knows who Kira is, and Kira uh, doesn't know who L is because L hides his identity. And as the Shinigami, the god of death, Ryuk says, uh, each one has to try to kill one another. Without knowing each other's identity, <laughs> and this is this is uh, particularly relevant for how the Death Note works, because in order to kill with the Death Note, you have to know someone's name and picture their face while you're writing it down. Mm-hmm. So, because uh, L hides his identity and even scrambles his voice, mm-hmm. uh, Kira can't use the Death Note to kill him. Which, perhaps one more thing for the uninitiated, because I know we have at least one listener who also has no idea about Death Note. What is the Death Note? Oh, uh, it is a supernatural notebook used by Shinigami to steal uh, life from humans. 
If you write someone's name down while picturing their face, uh, they will immediately die of a heart attack. There's mm -hmm. additional stuff to it, but that's the basics. The, yeah, the basics that are, is... if you don't put a cause of death, they'll die to a heart attack. If you put a cause yeah. of death, um, they'll die to that cause of death. And there's some shenanigans you can get up to there, but again, that's the basics. And Light Yagami happens to be a very smart, like, exceptional, genius Japanese student who happens to find a death note in the wild. Because a Shinigami dropped it to have some entertainment. Mm -hmm. I simply do not understand why you wouldn't use it to its full comedic potential and have someone get crushed by a giant large runaway cheese wheel. <laughs> uh, because Light Yagami also has a god complex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can and... only imagine what a death note would do in the Joker's hands. <laughs> but, uh... Boy. Maya, uh, the, the other great thing about L and Light is they have the same conviction. They both believe that they are justice. Light uh, only kills criminals and people trying to expose him, as believing that exposing him would be a bad thing because he could no longer kill criminals. Whereas mm -hmm. L is more lawful in the sense that he's old school. He wants to catch, first off, L suspects Light as soon as he finds out about him. <laughs> but he doesn't get him because he wants undeniable evidence that it is Light. Uh, would that even be a cathartic moment? Because are we are, are are we feeling more for the antagonist or the protagonist here? Oh honestly, it's, mm. it's a the fan. I've noticed I'm on the outside looking in, but the fandom seems very divided on that front. Yeah. I, I can see how it would be. Because uh, on one hand, a cab, but on the other hand, this other dude's even worse. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. Um... I, I would like to point out, um, yes, a, a cab, but um, L is a Sherlock Holmes type. He's not a um, licensed law enforcement officer. For he's the DC like a, fans, he's the question. Yeah, he's a PI. He's, yeah. Um, whereas Light is the son of uh, the, the chief of police <laughs> and works with the cops. Once more, ACAP. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maya, we gotta get, get you on the definite train. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a villain protagonist. Okay, it doesn't have lesbians, but <laughs> no, I think but it has some other things that you would enjoy. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> very homoerotic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we we have stuff like those are great archetypes. Uh, do we have any others we were like talking about though? Shoot, one literally just came to mind as, as I was talking about phantoms I've been on the outside looking in on, and Hannibal! Oh, Hannibal! Yeah. Oh, who's hmm. the antagonist for that? Shit. <laughs> if it, any of y'all seen Hannibal? I uh, have only seen the gif sets crossing my Tumblr gif dashboard. <laughs> it's been a minute. I have only seen the Silence of the Lambs. Fair. And I decided... I. 
didn't really want to watch more of something that had a character like Buffalo Bill. Yeah, that's fair. I will say, um, from what I hear anyway, um, the same problems are not in the show Hannibal, nor in the show that's coming out called Clarice, but I... For me, that's one of those things where a property gets one f***ed up, and if they f*** that up... Oops. Fair. Swears. Um, <laughs> but if they make that mistake, that's that's usually kind of it for my enjoyment of the franchise. That's fair. Uh, Harry Potter crossed that line actually not necessarily with anything that I noticed in it when I was reading mm-hmm. it, but with Rowling's statements. I'm pretty sure Rowling crossed that line for many of us in the trans community, so... Yeah. Uh, and then, going back afterwards, I've realized there is a lot of messed up stuff in those books. Mm-hmm. There is. But I do kind of love the world-building, so I'm out here like, I will read fan fiction that doesn't use the characters, that does use the world building, just because usually they're better. Uh, how do we feel about sort of the hidden mastermind, or, you know, the villain that's yeah, got a bunch of other people doing stuff for them? Is that just one, you know, master and apprentice? Like, someone with a network. Uh, I'm talking about, uh, sort Rarity. of, uh, like, Our Father? From uh, Full Metal Alchemist and Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood? I like Hidden Masterminds. It's enjoyable. However, I do say it's always much, much better if there's been foreshadowing for them the entire time. Yes. It's... And this kind of gets into something I think we mentioned at some point in the podcast about plot twists. It shouldn't just feel like it's come out of nowhere. There need to be little clues. Or, you know, the wool has been pulled over our eyes. The twist should feel like the wool has been pulled off of our eyes. You know, Mm -hmm. there were these pieces given to us. We just Mm -hmm. didn't put them all together. And now with the full picture, we can see it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So question for all of you. Is is Salem in Ruby enough for you guys? That uh, I mean, she's literally narrating the first episode, mm-hmm. like the intro to the first yeah, episode. Speak, speaking as someone who is rewatching the whole thing for like my third time while I'm still Only catching your up third with. Time? <laughs> it's a long series, and actually, it's the fourth time I think because I watched it all the way through with both my mother and my sister. So fourth time, um, with my roommate, and I'm out here. I'm still noticing things connected back to Salem um, from the first few volumes. So I'm up quite a bit satisfied with it. Not gonna lie. And also, I loved Moriarty in Sherlock. I love the whole... Um, there are clues. But you don't really put them all together until the villain reveals themselves in grand, spectacular fashion with murder. So... Uh... Not quite necessarily a mastermind, because this requires more planning and intelligent thought. Mm-hmm. But um, definitely a hidden puppet master character is the main antagonist for Mistborn Era 1. 
Ooh. For the uninitiated. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> um, gonna kind of get the spoilers for this here, obviously. I genuinely don't intend to seek it out. Go for it. Uh, as opposed okay. to just in case listeners wanted to avoid it. Uh, Mistborn, Era 1's uh, three books by Brandon Sanderson. And the main villain is a god with the capacity to do a couple of things. Mm -hmm. uh, anybody who has one of the right types of spikes of metal in them, there's special process for that. Not just anyone with an ear piercing can have this. He can influence them, and the more types of these special spikes, they're called hemallergic spikes. The more spikes they have, the more control he gets. Uh, with just one, it's, you know, kind of whispers and yeah. adjustments. With two, he starts to get a lot more and can control the sensory input you have. And then with mm -hmm. three, it's... Uh, three or more, he can take full control. Yes. I was trying to find a not crude way to put it. <laughs> and his other ability that's relevant to this is anything that is not written in metal, he can influence. Oof. And this has allowed him massive amounts of information control over time. Wow. And the way this slowly gets revealed to the audience and the way that we can see his manipulation f almost from the get-go, but we don't clock it. We go, okay, that's some funky world-building. Don't trust that which is not written in metal? What the hell does that mean? And then, when the reveal happens, you go, oh no. Oh no. It's... That is one of the better, like, in my opinion, one of the better reveals of, like, a puppet master or mastermind villain and antagonist. He's villain and an antagonist. One of the better reveals of those types of antagonists that I've seen. Um, reveals is one of Brandon Sanderson's strong suits. What, we've talked a lot about uh, big overarching villains, haven't we, Maya? Can we talk about the uh, little guys now? All right. This is where... Because we're all very normal, we talk about the locked tomb. Yeah, we were. Uh, we were. Dylan was wondering at the uh, at, at the beginning of here where how long it would take us to get to locked tomb. I was genuinely surprised Jod was not brought up earlier. Recording time: forty-one minutes. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I think that might actually be the longest it's been on an episode <laughs> without us mentioning the locked tomb. Through no fault of my own, I can assure you. <laughs> and actually, I think just the reason it's happened is the way it's structured. Locked Tomb does not have very many antagonists who are definitively that. Or not, mm -hmm. not definitively. Um, Sorry, that's poor phrasing on my part. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a gray area as to who's an antagonist and who's not and how they're an antagonist. And In the Locked Tomb... Antagonism is not a fixed state. No, not in the slightest. Uh, Especially... And part of that's, you basically have a different protagonist every book. Not to mention the non-linear story, storytelling in both Hero the Ninth and Nona the Ninth. Yeah. And so, for example, in like the first, maybe first half of Gideon the Ninth, 
Mm-hmm. Hera's pretty solidly an antagonist. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. is keeping Gideon from being able to do what she wants. She's mm-hmm. an antagonist. And then, as we learn a little bit more, the pool scene happens. Mm-hmm. And she shifts out of an antagonist to crawl. And by the end, is, uh, what's the word for when you have two... Gideon, Gideon literally baptizes the antagonist into a deuteragonist. Yeah, pretty much. Wait, fuck! <laughs> yeah, no, you're not wrong! <laughs> you're not wrong! <laughs> this is what I get for not getting past Genesis and then deciding to read the lock, too. <laughs> You're not wrong. I don't th- necessarily think that reading the Bible would have helped you catch that that's kind of a baptism allegory. You kind of have to more just grow up in a church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I never thought about it that way. Like, I knew it was a ba- baptism allegory, but I never thought about it being Gideon baptizing Harrow into becoming a Deuteragonist. That's great. I'm using that. <laughs> and, um... For further for further allegorical points, we find out at the end of Harrow, um, Gideon is the daughter of God. So, <laughs> so you know, who, who was the first? There was a person Jesus baptized in the Bible, right? What I'm hearing yes. is lesbian Jesus baptized a nun into being less of an antagonist. Yes. There's more analysis that happened here later, yeah. but I'll have to like ask people who've read the Bible later because yeah. I still haven't read it. Talk to Cam. <laughs> yeah. Talk to yeah. Cam. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I still haven't. Yeah, that's read what I'm going to do. <laughs> Maya, I thought you were American. Even I've read the Bible. My atheist <laughs> ass. I got bored. I fell asleep. So, anyways, uh, uh, we were talking about antagonists. Yes, and, and the lock right. tube. Yes. Um. <laughs> And so, okay, so Harrow's kind of the antagonist towards Gideon until the pool scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they kind of start working together, but then there's other antagonists. Antagonists, yep. yeah. There is um, some unknown mystery antagonist who picks up uh, maybe a quarter of the way into Gideon the Ninth, and you don't really yeah. learn who they are until pretty much the end oh my heart all the signs mm-hmm. are there yeah you, you, uh-huh. you don't really think much of Scytheria's behavior Mm-mm. no you don't especially since she's very good at fooling both everyone else and the audience into who she said she was well also no. <sighs> our perspective character is kind of a bit of a dumbass yeah and very attention is. starved. Like, if you've I mean, grown attention, up, attention starved, touch starved, um, starved. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. Dumbass is the maybe dumbass is the wrong word for it, considering her upbringing. Like, I mean, she is sheltered. also narratively a non-intellectual, right? So, okay. Well, yeah. Again, because her upbringing. Anyway. Well, this is no. This is actually something else I want to talk talk about. Uh, the engineering analogy of world building that I believe I've mentioned a few times of 
don't explain magic. Mm -hmm. Because who really has a book with pages on ignition combustion engines and radio towers? I do, actually. I have multiple. Uh, <laughs> that was a bad example. <laughs> well, so, well, the point is that in that existence, well, I, I was citing a meme I've seen passed around. Harrow is the engineer in there. Harrow understands fundamentally how the magic system works. Gideon doesn't. Gideon's on the outside of that. Partly because she's been kept there. And partly because frankly, the titty mags are more interesting to her. Well, yeah, but I feel like they'd be more interesting to anyone who isn't in love with a corpse, so... I beg your pardon. <laughs> the... the what? <laughs> Nobody explain anything to Dylan. <laughs> can, I, can I hijack yet? <laughs> you already had your Game of Thrones episode. We don't need a second one. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I wasn't even going to talk about I wanted to talk about minor villain, and a minor villain I think uh, we can all talk about is uh, one that's minor but very important to the overarching plot. I want to talk about Marcus from Arcane, if we all would. Ah, yeah. Hmm. That's an interesting one to bring up. Yeah. More very normal. Hmm. So when we look at Marcus, we see a corrupt cop. <laughs> very... Uh, yeah. yeah, but his work basically allows the events of the story to happen without Marcus. We don't get our lesbians. Could get done, yeah. Stuff could get done, you know. Well, it's also kind of interesting with the experiences that Kate has with frustrations with the enforcers. Mm. And experience with that, she may not have necessarily been as open to working with Vi. She may not have developed into the person that sh she is in the show. Mm -hmm. And also something that's interesting, Marcus is a terrible person. But at this point, he's between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, that's usually how it goes, isn't it? Uh, and that, that's something that's neat about Arcane is you can sympathize with damn near every character. Mm-hmm. Except maybe Ambessa at this point. Yeah. Her, Mel a little bit. Uh, you can sympathize with Mel a bit, considering how Ambessa is. Yes, but... Well, okay, there are a lot of people who don't sympathize with many of the characters in there, but nobody is wholly anything in Arcane. Mm-hmm. And that's neat. Yeah, it's very nice to have a story where that's the case played out on the screen specifically, because there are a lot of books where that's the case, but you don't really see that hit the silver screen very often. Especially not something so beautifully animated. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. After now involving you, Dylan gets to go on his uh, his speech about anime. So let me talk about two villain arcs from My Hero Academia that I think both have very good one arc villains. So this first, Stain, the hero killer. So the world of My Hero Academia, eighty percent of the population 
have something that gives them a power. Uh, Stain doesn't like the system they've built around that, in which heroes exist. And he doesn't like it because he believes a majority of heroes are not true heroes. They do it for the money, they do it for the fame, they do it for the glory. They don't do it because they're good people. So what does he do? Well, he goes around killing heroes. <laughs> I, I mean, he's not wrong. He, From what I recall of this show, I, I got bored at one point and dropped off. A lot of the heroes are mostly just in it for the money. Hmm. Which, as someone working in a field where a lot of the people in it are, rather than being in it to improve the world, in it for the money, oof. Hmm. And, but, what makes him different to the main villains, the League of Villains, is that he believes that All Might is a true hero. All Might doesn't do it for the money, he doesn't do it for anything. All Might does hero work because he's a true hero who wants to help save people and protect people which is and that is something he also recognizes in the main character Midoriya but ultimately he still has to take down because I believe overall he took out 35 heroes between uh, you know retiring injuries and killing like Damn. Dang. The, the other villains uh, I want to talk about is Overhaul from the Shia uh, Hasaikai arc. So Overhaul is a member of the Yakuza. And the Yakuza in a world full of superheroes are looked down upon because, well, who cares about the Yakuza when supervillains exist, you know? Your minor organized crime rings are nothing compared to villains. What Overhaul looks to do is to make a way for the Yakuza to be powerful. That's his goal. And he does absolutely terrible things <laughs> to get that going. And the arc... <laughs> And what he does, right, and this is spoilers for that arc, but he his quirk is that he can destroy and rebuild. So what he does is he takes away his boss, his adoptive father, basically. He takes away to a part of his brain to make him catatonic so that he can do all his work and then wake up the boss and be like, look at what I've done well, without you around. But what happens is, after he's defeated by the heroes, the League of Villains ambush him on his way to a villain hospital. And he rebuilds with his arms. He rebuilds and destroys with his arms and hands. So what do the League of Villains do, Maya? I don't remember. They chop off both his arms, and now he cannot repair uh, his boss's mind who's forever catatonic, his adoptive father. And whenever we see Overhaul again, he is a mess who doesn't know what to do because he has no arms and can't use his quirk to repair his adoptive father's brain. 
I can imagine that would screw you up. Yeah, I mean, Overhaul is a terrible person. <laughs> but <laughs> you see when he loses his, his arms, he breaks. I mean, really, there's some things that just shouldn't happen to anyone. Okay, y'all have had your turn at hijacking. Here's my soapbox on Visser 3. Oh! <laughs> oh! No, I'm interested in this. Let's go. <laughs> I liked the Animorphs series as a kid. It's fine. Uh, Animorphs is uh, one of my core personality traits, yes. Um, <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> Oh boy. Okay, so Visser 3 is the primary antagonist throughout the entire series of Animorphs. Um, Visser 3 is is not his name. His actual name is Esplan 9466. Um, I am surprised that I was able to rattle that off so, so fluently. Anyways, um, Visser is kind of a rank in the uh, Yurk Empire. Uh, kind of equivalent to general, and the number after it is how many there are. Um, with the lower the number, the higher in, in the hierarchy you are. So he is the third highest-ranking general in the Yurk Empire, and because of how hierarchical the Yurk Empire is, it also means um, he's basically the third below the Council of Thirteen that rules the entire empire. There's like two two other Yurks above him. Um, Visser's one and two. Visser's one and two. Visser two never really plays a big role in the story. He shows up at one point and Visser one is a whole. Visser one is is very important and and um, the the dynamic between Visser three and Visser one is also uh, a very important to how the stories plays out because Visser one is the one who started the invasion of Earth. And is the one who has insisted on keeping it um, this sort of slow secret yeah, uh, you invasion, might, might infiltration. Give some context. Is, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the Yurks are mind-controlling brain slugs who are trying to take over the Earth because uh, in their natural form, they are blind and deaf and their only senses are touch and taste. They spend their lives swimming around in a greasy pool absorbing radiation but they can slide into the ear of a saint of a sapient creature and attach to their brain and take over and suddenly they have the ability to um walk and see and hear and uh so <laughs> they they are given technology by the Andalites who take pity on their slug existence and they immediately turn around and backstab the Andalites and steal ships and weapons and start out and start an empire trying to take over the galaxy so that all Yurks can have hosts and um, see the beauty of the universe. Uh, when. I mean not the worst goal ever. It's, no, I mean, it's, it's not. Relatable. It's it's this is why it's relatable. The the Yerks the Yerks are kind of pitiable when you when you find out about this. And mm -hmm. it eventually comes out that a lot of the Yerks are kind of uncomfortable with the the whole enslavement part. But huh. not all of them are. Um so anyways, uh humanity is the first species they come across that has a population level in the billions. Is what the Yerks refer to as a category 
category five species, I think is their scale. Anyways, um, but what that means is that while human technology is greatly inferior to the technology that the Yerks got from the Andalites and have continued to somewhat develop on their own, um, Visser One recognizes that uh, sheer numbers could uh, prevail in a straight-up invasion. Uh, so uh, it is Visser One's decision to do a um, infiltration-style invasion, uh, take over notable... Um, persons and slowly expand your influence over human culture uh, until uh, they get to a tipping point where they can just take over everything. Um, this is not Visser 3's style. Visser 3 has obtained his rank uh, by becoming the only Yurk to take over an Andalite. Um, he does not know subtlety. Uh, he believes in using overwhelming force at all times. Um, this comes across in his characterization. So Andalites speak telepathically, right? They use thought yep. speech. And the thing about thought speech is that you can modulate how many people you're talking to at, at any given time mm -hmm. and how loud it comes across. Visser 3 never does that. He speaks... At full volume, to everyone, at all times. Constantly, yep. Yep. Huh. That, that's, a, that's a really interesting way of using that as a characterization tool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he's also a uh, bad boss. <laughs> uh, because <laughs> his immediate response to anything that he perceives as insubordination... Um, or making him look bad is uh, beheading. Oh, so like Maya. Hey, that's that's not true. Um, and he's also convinced this this kind of um does him in uh and and helps the animorphs themselves because they have morphing technology which is something that only Andalites have. And ever since the Yurks backstabbed the Andalites and took their tech, the Andalites have a law against sharing their technology with any other alien species. So because they have morphing technology, they must be Andalites. But several of his subordinates over the course of the series notice things that indicate that the Animorphs are probably actually human. Things like human footprints leading into the water in an early book and not coming back out. Um, things like uh, if you analyze the casualty rates, uh, if you analyze the casualty rates amongst the Yerk's controller, your controllers, their, their hosts, um, they seem to hold back a lot more when facing other humans. Mm -hmm. um, but nobody's wanting to point this out to Visser 3 because nobody wants to draw his attention and possibly be wrong. That is, oh, that, that is such an excellent, mm. I need, is, I really need to read Animorphs again. I read a do. few books when I was you younger. You do. Go ahead. It was Go fundamental it. to my childhood. Because that's, 
that's really good writing right there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, you need a bit of plot armor from something like that, because eventually something <laughs> like that would become revealed of you need some way to prevent your characters from getting yeah. outed before it's useful for the story you're trying to tell. And that reason, rather than being a bit of a deus ex machina, is worked into the characterization of a major antagonist. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to talk about sort of two or three, but they are all a part of the same game and the same thing. So I'm talking about, world. yeah, Malus, Amalthus, <laughs> and Jin. <laughs> so Amalthus is someone who hates the world. <laughs> he hates the world. Uh, he is a part of the religious organization uh, in the world of Allrest. He, uh, when we meet him, uh, he is a quester. And Amalthus grows so disillusioned with the world, his mother is killed during a war. He becomes, uh, he finds religion to try and help him make sense of the world and only finds that the people he helps then destroy more lives during war. And so he questions the god that he's said to worship, the architect of the world. He said, is this the world you intend? And so he climbs the world tree to go meet the architect. And when he gets there, he reaches the top, and he doesn't find the architect. What he does find are two... Um... What would I describe as Zohar shaped, cross shaped, um, uh, sort of, uh, little trinkets. And he takes them back and he activates one of them. And the one he activates summons a being known as Malos. So Malos, by being awakened by a Malthus, gets sort of. Amalthus's id, but only his id. The wanting for destruction and to end the world. Amalthus wants to end the world in a different way, though. Amalthus wants to end the world by slowly letting the titans, the things that people live on, die off, and then becoming the architect himself. Uh... And then recreating the world in his image. Malos wants to destroy the world and kill the architect. <laughs> now, Amalthus and Malos originally, uh, basically, they both. Malos, by being awakened by Amalthus, causes a lot of problems for Amalthus. Uh, so he wants to stop Malos. But. Malus eventually gets defeated and 500 years pass, and Amalthus' plan works. But Malus shows back up. And Malus then, with and Jin, who is a character who 500 years ago had helped stop him, uh, now they work together to oppose Amalthus, because Amalthus is now the leader of the major religion in the world. And by doing that, he dictates blades. Blades are basically beings that collect data 
and when they connect to a, a, another person called a driver, and when their driver dies, they return to their crystal and can be awakened by the next by another person. They retain no memories of their past lives, but retain other information. Amalfus dictates that, and Jin hates that because Jin. Jin broke that rule because he ate his driver's heart. And by fusing blade cells with human cells, he became a flesh eater, which means he doesn't return to his core crystal. But he, and he keeps his memories. Amalfus and Jin work together and go to destroy the. kill the Arctic and destroy the world. Amalfus wants to stop them, so. He makes uneasy alliances with the main heroes and so on. And it is... The villains of Xenoblade 2 are looking at the sense of, like, nihilism and how... And Mal especially, he's not even sure if he, as a person, wants to end the world. He thinks that do I actually want to end the world, or is this just a Malthus? Because he awoke me, I want to end the world. It's a question of free will, then. And it's reflected in the protagonist and everything. And then Jin is sort of the nihilism of... He wants to die in the most spectacular way, and to end the world because he... Hates it too because of what Amalfus did to him. Amalfus was the reason that he had to eat his driver's heart. And combined together, it makes an emotional story where at the end, when these three villains die, despite their goals being to destroy the world, you're fucking crying at these characters dying. Because there's a question of was there any other way these three people could have lived after what they experienced? And I love it. <laughs> to the shock and surprise of absolutely nobody, I'm going with Catra. Um, and I'm not going... And again, villain seems like... A, I know. Villain... <laughs> Uh, seems like a cop out in turn I'd definitely prefer to think of her as an antagonist if only because right right yeah she was a yeah, bad she... guy for a while but a circumstance whoo circumstance she's an antagonist <laughs> for the first four seasons yeah but also she does get a redemption arc at which point uh, I'm eh about calling her villain anyway she called out my trauma something fierce. <laughs> she really, really took one look at me and said, Hey, yeah, you know, everything that you've been bottling up for so long, I'm going to be a representation of that for you. And it's just, but I love her so much. Um, she, to me, she's a realistic depiction of a traumatized child. Obviously, everyone's different. Everyone's got different forms of trauma. I just happen to have both mommy issues and daddy issues. Um, and 
her I also have always been a sucker for the childhood friends to enemies to lovers trope and you don't get that in, in actual media very often at all and if you do it turns into more childhood friends to rivals to lovers which is a completely different thing also when is it ever sapphic in when is it ever sapphic really um yeah no it's it come she hits from a point of home because she is a broader antagonist in that she is base she basically becomes the leader of the horde by the end of season four. Like she is basically calling all of the shots for all of the troops and all of that jazz. But also she's a very more personal antagonist for Adora. Like she knows exactly where to hit Adora where it hurts because they grew up together. They were really close. And she has a different impact because she's combining kind of two antagonist archetypes into one and i'm also a massive lesbian and i am completely head over heels in love with her so uh, and if you've got and i feel like i should probably stop talking because if i keep going i will never stop talking about her um relatable i will probably i will probably mention i'm not sure if we mentioned socials in the closing but if we do you will probably see me talking about her constantly on the there so moving on so i'm not going to necessarily say my favorite antagonist because uh that list spiraled quickly I eliminated ones that I that I figured most people who listen to this wouldn't have heard of, and that's how I narrowed mine down. So, uh, fair. See, I simply don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I just picked mine because I knew that nobody else here was going to talk about it. Uh, well, you weren't wrong. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk about Nicodemus, which is who is a villain from the Dresden Files series. If you haven't read it, you're probably going to hear me talking about it a lot on the show, because I like it. I'm a huge fan of it. It is nearly perfect. It doesn't have enough lesbians. It could do with more lesbians. I don't think it has any, actually. But I think everything would be made better with more lesbians. Exactly. But the the, the setting, the story, a lot of other things about it are the food. And Nicodemus is, he is awful. He is a very, very, very bad person. His introduction to the story is basically attempting to bring back the Black Plague and release COVID, as well as several other major massively infective diseases simultaneously. That's what he's doing the first time he shows up. And he is old. We don't know how old. He's mostly human. He's, uh, for context, in the setting of the Dresden Files, elements from pretty much every religion are canonical. Um if that makes any sense. It's never confirmed if the Christian... I don't believe it's ever directly confirmed whether or not the Christian God exists, but 
that doesn't matter all that much. What matters more is the power of faith. Uh, and by believing in either a deity or a mindset or a movie series, you give that power. And that has its own magical properties. And so all types of faiths show up, but obviously given that it's set in the U.S., Christianity does show up frequently, and Nicodemus is... There's a thing with uh, fallen angels, I believe. Yeah. And, okay, I... As I mentioned earlier in the episode, my Bible scholarly is low. <laughs> so you have that. And Nicodemus has been around for a while. It's never made super clear. But he's been around, I think, confirmed since the 11th century. It's mentioned at one point that he makes a point of going in and destroying any... Um, records that the church has about him every so hundred years yeah, yeah no nobody's one's really, really sure how sure. old he is uh and he's got he, i think he's wearing uh, some other he's got a lot of historically significant christian artifacts on him yeah. so we know he's been around for a hot minute and that kind of plays into him as a character is information control he tightly controls the information available to both Dresden and the reader. And that creates a lot of excellent tension. He's one of my favorite villains in the series because he's just a bastard. He's charming. He's got a bit of a silver tongue. Mm -hmm. But he's working towards Things that are bad. He wants to cause the apocalypse. I think there is some implication in the story that the reason he's trying to cause the apocalypse um, has something to do with, like, a greater scope uh Yes, it, it's plan, implied a couple but... of times that he believes there's... There's some stuff talked about in Skin Game relative to that, relative yeah. to that, yes. Which, and this discussion of a greater plan and doing things for the greater good and defeating some ancient enemy happen as he's sacrificing his daughter who has been around herself for centuries. And he's doing all this to keep the group that he's traveling with that includes a coerced and very grumpy about it, Harry Dresden, to keep them distracted so they wouldn't interfere, because... Sorry, Skin Game is one of my favorite books of all time, so uh -huh. a little bit more of a tangent. Harry is strong-armed into working with basically the devil incarnate. So what does he do? Well, he goes to his friend the cop for backup. Well, I think she's retired at this point. Anywho, she gets injured. She gets taken out by Nicodemus kind of being a douchebag. So what does Harry do but call up 
<laughs> a cru- uh-huh. basically a crusader, uh-huh. <laughs> which is I find that very amusing, and that you're working with an evil person, so you who I'm trying to find a good analogy for it, but it's it's this kind of cheeky snark that's very true to Harry. And I get to see it going on the whole time because the Denarians have to not rip off his face. And one of the things that makes Nick Demas stand out against all the other villains in the Dresden Files is he's... You don't feel bad for him, really. There's opportunities that Jim Butcher gives you to feel bad for him, but Nicodemus always manages to just fuck that up. Mm-hmm. Like, you can feel sympathetic for him for maybe 30 seconds, and then he goes and does something worse. Yep. There's actually one incident at, in Skin Game that I'm kind of talking about mainly here of he is in pain from killing his daughter because while he may be a right bastard, he feels emotions. And Harry taunts him with this, which is excellent and cathartic because if you're going to sacrifice your child for quote unquote the greater good, bestie, you need your head checked. Mm-hmm. But it's hard not to feel some sympathy for someone in pain. Nicodemus then realizes that Harry could have only realized exactly how to taunt him if he was a father himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there had previously been a large arc within the story about Harry having to cross a lot of lines to protect his daughter. So Nicodemus, or Nicodemus, sorry, immediately goes and attempts to gank Harry's daughter. Yeah. The other villains that show up throughout Dresden Files... Marcone, Morgan, a little bit Duke Ortega, Merlin, Mab. You gain a level of understanding for them. And while they are less, while they still remain villains, they often shift out of directly antagonistic roles and are more. I'm I'm gonna have to stop myself from getting into describing characters as vectors, but rather than being directly opposed, a lot of these characters, as it turns out, have motivations that will that align with what uh, Harry, they're at the protagonist's motivations are. That never happens with Nicodemus. He's always, always that opposition. How long did I go on about Nicodemus? I feel like that was 
20 minutes. A while. It was a while. <laughs> Oops. Let's give some quick advice for writing antagonists and then wrap up. Put as much effort into them as you do your protagonists. <laughs> yes. Uh, as the title of the episode implies, the real MVP, antagonists are crucial to your story. Mm -hmm. And antagonists that are just kind of dog water or that aren't they're there just to be evil. They're going to be a lot weaker and are going to make your story weaker generally. Yeah. Con conflict is essential to a good story and you kind of need a good antagonist for your protagonist to have conflict with. Uh, yeah, what I would also say is you don't need to have this, but I would recommend, especially if you have a longer-running series with multiple antagonists, having at least one antagonist where not quite full-on outright they're right, but although I do enjoy that, antagonists who are relatable, antagonists who we can feel sympathetic to. Because, they're, well, they're people. An antagonists are people, too. That's, that's it. That, that's, I think, a better way of putting it. Mm -hmm. That's fair. The antagonist had a life before they started a po before they came into conflict with a protagonist, and hopefully they'll have a life after. But we'll see. <laughs> Depends on the antagonist. Depends. Yeah, yeah. And again, it doesn't it doesn't have to be in. Um, sometimes your story just calls for a right bastard. See Nicodemus. But sometimes a villain who or, or antagonist who we just feel kind of bad for see Catra it works yeah. really well with the story it, it, it depends on the story you're trying to tell personally I think usually you want more villains where there's you don't need to feel bad from but like villains that aren't just oh you're a Nazi yeah. Because, okay, yeah, beating up Nazis is cathartic, but, but it's a little... I mean, that's like kid show level of antagonist, though. Yes, that's... Requires no level of critical thinking. Um, Your child's in front of the screen cheering because the bad guy's getting beat. I think it produces a more interesting story when there is... When the line between your good guys and your bad guys is harder to see. That said, that's very different from the line between who we're rooting for and who we're rooting against. And that, I think both sharp delineations and really more of a gradient are useful for different stories. All right. Um, check the mailbag. We don't have anything on the Twitter account. Ian, do you have anything? We don't have anything in the Gmail inbox either. 
Um, so just a reminder for ev- everyone li- who listens, uh, if you have something that you want to say to us, uh, reach out. We want to hear from you. Uh, you can you can get us at fanfictapes at gmail.com. And at fanfictiontapes on Twitter. Uh, you can also go ahead and uh, leave us a review on Spotify or a comment on YouTube. Yeah, that um, helps us get the word out and this podcast growing is what will help it continue so yeah so do we have a prompt for today uh we do write a story featuring a combination of two of the archetypes of antagonists we talked about here on the podcast today all right well uh we are well over our word count for today, and probably also our word count for tomorrow at this point. Jay, mm? do you have any platforms you'd like to share with the listeners in case they liked some of your thoughts and want to see where they could find more? Um, well, you're going to find me most active on my Twitter, AlphaJ071. Um, if you want, I also have a Tumblr by the same name. You can send me an ask there. Um, and of course I have my AO3 if you want to see me write about Catra and Adora and other things but mostly them <laughs> you can check me out again AlphaJ071 I am and have been Maya I am always Dylan and I am latently but forevermore Jay and I am Ian bye bye